Amen and amen. I like the way that psalm ends. It's speaking of, of course, David, but it's also pointing to Christ as the uh, great uh, king of God's uh, people. That Christ is the highest of kings on all the earth, just as David was uh, in his time. That David's kingdom would never come to an end. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ so we thank the Lord for being faithful to his covenant promises to his people Uh, with that being said let us go before the Lord in prayer father I've come to you this morning with a um, heart that is burdened for our people for your people Uh, looking to you this morning as we prepare uh, to hear from you from the book of Ezra but Lord before then um, my my prayer this morning is that you hear my prayer according to Christ and his finished work on the cross there's nothing in me Lord that uh, makes me uh, worthy uh, for you to hear uh, my prayers Uh, so father I pray that your grace be with me this morning as I pray First of all, Lord, prayers and supplications go uh, this morning to our uh, church, that you continue to uh, strengthen us, that you continue to grow us in in grace, grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you strengthen our faith in you and our trust and our hope in you. Father, I pray that you strengthen us through the uh, means of grace that you have provided uh, for us, including uh, scripture and prayer and and fellowship and meditating on your word and loving and serving uh, the flock of God. Lord, I pray that you use those uh, means to build us up in our in the most holy uh, faith. Father, I thank you for the encouraging prayer that Bob uh, sent me this morning for our church that we may continue to strive to be a spiritually flourishing community according to Romans uh, 15 and 13. That may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Lord, I thank you for that encouragement coming from our dear brother and Lord that is my prayer for our church family that we continue to strive to be a spiritually flourishing community that you flourish us by your spirit by the means of the spirit Lord to to grow to mature as one body as one community that we continue to love and serve each other That we continue to not only look out for our own needs, but also on the needs of others within our fellowship. That we continue to pray for each other. That we continue to uh, speak your truth from your word to each other as a means of encouragement. Lord, that you build us up. Build us up, Lord, as a body of Christ into the image of Christ that we may be a church that is a beacon of light to our community, that as we go out from our church each and every Lord's Day, that we are 
equipped to share the gospel, that we are equipped to live gospel-centered lives in all the contexts that we are in the context of the family, the home, at school, on our jobs, or out in the public square. That we're able to boldly proclaim and boldly live out the gospel message. And Lord, I pray this morning for uh, Melissa, uh, that you be with her, had a chance to talk to her this morning. That you just encourage her in your spirit, Lord, uh, as a single mom raising two boys and working around children. Um, I can't imagine how tough that is. Uh, But Lord, I pray that you be with her as she helps to raise uh, those two uh, boys. That you strengthen her, that you give her um, wisdom in raising them and in parenting them and in shepherding their hearts. And Lord, I also pray uh, that you strengthen her on her job and what she has to deal with in her, her workplace, her work environment. That your spirit may be with her, that she knows that you're with her, that you give her wisdom, that you give her discernment in in who to uh, partner with and who not to partner with. Lord, just be with her right now this morning in in spirit. Strengthen her by your spirit, Lord. And we pray for Miss Sandy, who is struggling uh, with uh, years and years of, of spiritual abuse through uh, false doctrine. The false doctrine is like a, a cancer. It is like a, a poison. It, it slowly infects our bodies and our, and our spirits. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to recover from. It's not impossible. But, Lord, it is, it is hard to recover from if you've been a part of it for so long. And, Lord, that is what she's struggling with right now. And um, she desires to meet with uh, uh, my wife and I. Lord, we pray that we're able to to do that soon and that you give us wisdom as we meet with her give us wisdom from your word in how uh, to uh, come out of the ravages of, of the false teaching that she uh, was under for so long or she has a desire to do it and we thank you for that well sometimes the struggle is is, is very mighty uh, so lord we're praying that you be with miss uh, miss sandy and continue to uh, strengthen her by your spirit. Continue to uh, do your work in her heart and in her mind to bring her out of um, what she has been a part of for so long. Well, sometimes the greatest battlefield that we as Christians face is the battlefield of our minds and our our thinking. And, and Satan likes to attack our thinking with, with doubts. Uh, doubting you, doubting your goodness, doubting your word. Doubting your covenant faithfulness. Uh, doubting people who are seeking to, to, to love us and to shepherd our hearts into um, a right view of you. Uh, so, Lord, we, we pray for members in here who may be struggling with uh, whether it's false doctrine or, or other uh, doctrinal issues. Uh, that, Lord, you, you shepherd their hearts and that we shepherd each other's hearts. Uh, toward your truth as it has been revealed in your word uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for our children in here, our school-age children, as they go through life, that they appreciate uh, the gospel message that they hear and that you 
you work the gospel into their hearts and that they don't just see it as as an exercise to please other people but lord that what they're doing is pleasing to you because uh, all of us will have to give an account of our life and what we do with our time and what we do with what we have heard all of us will have to give an account for that uh, before you lord so i pray that you work your saving grace in them also and lord again we we thank you for our uh, sister churches they've been a great encouragement to us uh, especially brother bob and brother michael at uh, anderson bible they have been a great help to us as as fellow elders and helping to shepherd our church well we thank you lord for them i pray that you be with bob this morning brother michael and their new assistant pastor they continue to lead that uh, body uh, well and uh, brother phil down at redeemer church and his elders um, brother ben brown and, and others down there lord that you you bless them and strengthen them also and brother carlton at grace fellowship um, brother anthony at christian fellowship lord all of us as men all pastors in our area that are proclaiming the truth of christ that you lord strengthen all of us give us all wisdom to shepherd our churches especially through the times in which we're living but there's increased hostility toward the lord's church and the lord's people that we impart your wisdom that we uh, shepherd the flock of god with great uh, care and great oversight because lord we have to give an account uh, to you for how we shepherd our church shepherd your church rather and fathers we come now to the ministry of the word i pray for illumination lord we often value other things we need to look to heaven we need to look at our risen exalted savior we need to look at your glory we need the help of the holy spirit to see the value and the treasure that you are lord i pray that we will lose our uh, enamoring our uh, affections with the things of this world and the way we are so caught up in the things here lord give us heavenly minds as we consider heavenly things teach us lord i pray that you will rebuke the evil one that he would not distract us but that our minds might hear your truth with focused minds and focused hearts Help us, Lord, to hear your word as it is in authority and not the word of the preacher. Help us, Lord, to welcome it as such as we humble ourselves before you. So, Lord, instruct us, instruct me. We pray for your illumination in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Ezra, the eighth chapter. We're continue with our series in this book the theme that we've uh, chosen for this book uh, earlier God's way of renewing and reviving and restoring his people and as we've been going through these messages we've seen how God has done this with this people who has come back from exile we read about the first group that came with uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua in chapters 1 through 6 and uh, two weeks ago we started in chapter 7 beginning with the second group of exiles under uh, Ezra and so we're 
in the second chapter of that part of that group coming back and we're not going to read the whole chapter but just give a overview of the contents of it as we uh, look at our uh, message and so the beginning of the chapter speaks of the heads of the families uh, who return uh, with them we're going to talk about that as we get into our sermon and then begin at verses 15 through 20 uh, we see the servants for the temple the uh, Nethanim uh, that were called and there are a list of names in here also and then we see begin at verse 21 that there was a fast uh, that was called uh, for protection and that's going to be the center point of our uh, message this morning then begin at verse 24 we see uh, gifts for uh, the temple uh, that they brought back uh, from Babylon and then lastly we see the return to uh, Jerusalem those who had uh, came back from the captivity so that is an overview of this chapter hopefully you had a chance to read it before uh, this morning uh, since there's no question where we're going to be each week amen so just as an uh, opening here there's a theologian that wrote about the fading vision about this uh, list the meaning of uh, the names he says here Ezra's list of the returning exiles makes interesting reading if only because of the total number comes to fewer than uh, 1500 and the question is why because the first group that came back uh, there were over 50,000 that came back so why was there a small group in comparison and we will we will see that uh, when we get into our uh, principles but again with the meaning of names as we talked about before uh, with the second chapter the list of names in redemptive uh, history and why that is always in there because again it shows a continuation of God's story in the history of his covenant people that genealogy was very important to ancient cultures because it showed some type of continuation or some type of continuity you know things continuing uninterrupted so we see the names of those exiles the families who returned again it speaks of those who came back and those who are continuing God's redemptive story of course during this time I'm sure they didn't know that they were part of redemptive history but we can see from our purview that they are as you look at the thread of scripture and how uh, everyone uh, survived when they came back because again God promised the exile to be only 70 years he could have promised that they would die out in exile because he had the power to do that but had he done that uh, there would have been no lineage for Christ if all the Jews had died out and in the events of the book of Esther which happened you know between chapters 6 and 7 had Haman's plot to kill all the Jews had his plot been successful then there would have been no Israelite there would have been no Jewish people and that would have uh, also uh, ended that redemptive arc so God in his sovereignty brought these people back and he wants us to see uh, the names of them so our big idea for this 
this passage this morning is we're focusing on God's divine protection. Last two weeks we looked at God's divine providence. God blesses the work of those who seek to honor him through choosing faithful and qualified leaders, through trusting in his divine protection, through entrusting the gospel and other sacred things to faithful people, and worshiping Christ, or worshiping rather, in a Christ-centered way. So our overall principle is God blesses the work of those who seek him through these different ways. The first way is by choosing faithful and qualified leaders. So I teased in the beginning by talking about the lack or seemingly lack of people who came back. Why was there so few uh, a number? One, theologi- uh, one theologian, as I was reading, he posited that um, life in Babylon had become so secure and comfortable to the Jews. You have to remember, they were there for uh, about 70 years. They had built their lives, families, they built homes. You know, they were an agrarian culture, so they were growing their food and their livestock and all those things. And perhaps they were practicing, you know, still doing the sacrificial system as much as they could. So these people had built their lives there and they had become comfortable. And many of them perhaps did not have a desire to undertake uh, this long journey. They had become very comfortable. They had been in Babylon for 60 years. So a total of about 1,515 men plus women and children had come back. So they had gotten comfortable in Babylon. They got comfortable with their life in this pagan place. They had families. They had jobs. And they didn't want to make uh, this treacherous and dangerous journey back to uh, Jerusalem because it took about four months, over 900 900 to 1,000 miles for them to come back to Jerusalem. So the vision for returning home had faded. You know, after 60 years, like, what's the use of going back? You know, we're not going back to anything because they had no idea that the temple was being rebuilt at all. They lost their zeal that they once had for the Lord and his city. And they became more absorbed in their life in Babylon. They lost their zeal for Jerusalem which was the holy city of God, which was the seat and center of worship for Israel. They have been in Babylon for so long, and that is a message for us. That can happen to us in our Christian lives. We can lose our zeal for God, and we can chase after the Babylon where we live. Babylon represents the world, the world systems, the world ideologies, the philosophies of this world, the the trappings of this world. We can be like those Israelites and lose our affections for God quickly by seeking to gain the world's attention. Jesus told the church at Ephesus in um, Revelation 2 and chapter 4, he told them they, they had lost their first love. That was the fault that he had with the Ephesian church. One thing he had against them. That's what the scripture says in Revelation 
2 and 4. That they had lost their first love. And who was their first love supposed to be? It was supposed to be Christ. But they lost it. They were the loveless church. And God says this here. Nevertheless I have this against you. That you have left your first love. And he says here in verse 5 of Revelation 2. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. He told them to repent and do the first works. Israel, those Israelites that remain in Babylon, they lost their first love. And we can do the same thing in our Christian life. Paul lamented about this when he wrote in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 4 and 10 that he was uh, abandoned. By one who worked with him because he had a love for the world. He says for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. So uh, Demas who was one of Paul's right hand men had departed from being one of his ministry helpers. And why did he do so? Because he had loved this present world. Loving meant that he set his affections, his heart on this present world. And the thing about it, friends, is when we set our hearts on this world, we're going to lose our affections for Christ. We can't do both. We can't have it both ways. We can't love the world and love Christ uh, with equanimity. In other words, with the same equal affections. We cannot do that. It is impossible. Jesus even said that about money or mammon. He said you cannot love God and mammon. You can't. You can't have it both ways. And this world can be our Babylon. Our lives in this world can suck us dry and rob us of our joy in Christ, who is our first love, if we're not alert. If you as a Christian here, if we're struggling with our affections for Christ, have we considered... How much more we love the world and the things of the world more than we love Christ and the things of Christ. And the thing is, is not that we don't want to get too far in one ditch where it says that we cannot enjoy the things of the world. Because Paul tells us that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. God created this earth for us to enjoy it, to to go out and go on a hike, to go driving and what he has created to go to the beach or to do whatever to enjoy the things that he has given man the ingenuity to build God has given all those things for us to enjoy to enjoy his creation but the problem comes when we disorder our affections they become inordinate that means unordinary and we put all of our affections into those things all of our affections into re recreation all of our affections into play all of our affections into the things of this world. That's where the sin comes. When we make idols of Babylon. We make idols of the world. We make idols of the things of the world. To the point that if it is taken from us. We don't know what to do with ourselves. But if someone says you can't have Christ. Then we're okay with that. So. 
we can have a Babylon just as these Israelites did that didn't want to come back. They got comfortable in a pagan land. But that was not God's will for those people. His will for them was to return. After the 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, then they would return to rebuild. That was God's will for his people. But the world, our Babylon, can suck us dry. Our Babylon will always try to cloud our spiritual vision. And this was the case with God's people in Babylon in this chapter. So after gathering by the river by Ahava, we see in verse 15, he says, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. After they camped there, Ezra found no Levites. He said, I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. That was a problem. That was a problem. Why? Levites served in temple worship. They were the spiritual leaders. And they should have been at the forefront of the group that was headed back to Jerusalem. But guess what? None of them were there. None of the Levites that were in Babylon at this time wanted to go back to Jerusalem. That was a problem. And Ezra saw that as a problem. The Levites were spiritual leaders. And they were nowhere to be found. And Zerubbabel had this same uh, problem back in Ezra, the second chapter, uh, verses 36 through 42. He had the same problem. But nevertheless, Ezra sent for Levites uh, from Edo in Casiphia. And he ended up with 38 uh, plus 220 Nethanim. Nethanim were uh, temple servants. He sent for them. He says in verse 16, I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, and he gives the names of all of those men. In verse 17, I gave them a command uh, for Edo, the chief man at the place, Casiphia, and I told them what they should say to Ido and his brethren and the Nethanim at the place of Casiphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of God. In other words, go there and get them and bring them back. Just a note about this. Number one, workers matter as much as leaders. He didn't just look for Levites, he also looked for the Nethanim. He needed those to serve in the temple alongside those who were the leaders. Workers matter as much as leaders. If you have leaders without an adequate number of workers, then guess what? The leaders will have too much to do. And this will hinder proper leadership. And if you have workers, but inadequate numbers of leaders, then the workers will have no direction or understanding. All parts of Christ's body are necessary for the whole to function. You know, when I was growing up, my old folks had a saying, uh, you had too many chiefs and no Indians. <laughs> you had a bunch of leaders, but you had no one who wanted to serve and, and follow. And that was the case here. So Ezra had to make sure that not only did they have Levi's, Levites rather, Levi's jeans, that's what I'm thinking about, I'm sorry. Not only did they have Levites, but they had the Nethanim also. Another thing to notice that God qualifies those 
whom he calls into serving by putting in their hearts a desire to serve. You see this in verse 18. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel named Sherebia with the uh, sons and brothers, 18 men. So God had qualified those whom he had called. These men were ready to lead his people. Another thing about this is that God looks for faithful and holy men to lead his people and his church. He looks for faithful men to do that and holy men. Ezra looked for faithful men because he knew what the Lord had required. And Paul talked about this himself in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 in regards to elders leading the Lord's church. Faithfulness and holiness were two of the great qualifications. Great faithfulness is required in leading the Lord's people. Because you certainly can't be in it for yourself. It takes faithful men to lead God's people. Now, this does not relegate women to nothingness in the church. Okay? Women serve an important role in the ministry of the church also in a very complimentary way. But they did not serve the role of pastor and elder. That is reserved for uh, godly and qualified men. So women also have a role in the church body. It's not just all men uh, who lead and the women do nothing. Women also help to love and serve the body of Christ also in their capacities, just not as uh, the pastor elder. And that was God's prescription for the church. And even back in this uh, chapter, we see this also. So this principle boils down to one thing. That when we have faithful and qualified leaders leading the Lord's church, he will bless their work. God chooses faithful and qualified leaders. And in doing that, God blesses their work. And the blessings are not always numerical. But they're more spiritual than anything. Because those are the blessings that ultimately matter. And that's what mattered ultimately to God. It wasn't the number of people that were coming back, although it was a small number. It wasn't the number of people that were coming back. It was the quality of these people. Were they ready to lead? Were they ready to serve? Were they ready to help rebuild God's people spiritually? And that's what he was looking for in this passage, and that's what we see. I mean, the next principle, God blesses the work of those who seek to honor him through trusting in his divine protection. So the table is set. The Levites and the uh, Nethanim are here. God bless Ezra with them. But before going further, uh, Ezra wisely proclaims a fast. And we see this beginning at verse 21. It says, Then I proclaim a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. 
Why do elders proclaim a fast and prayer for protection? It was because of what he told the king in verse 22. He says, for I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against those who forsake him. So he proclaimed a fast for God's protection. Okay? Because he told the king, I appreciate it, but we don't need your help. Thanks, but no thanks. This is a bold proclamation for him because the king said, remember back in chapter 7, that whatever protection you needed, just ask. But Ezra said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to trust in who? The Lord to protect us. So he called a fast. So we're going to take a close look at this passage. First of all, fasting. Uh, in the Old Testament in particular, a fast was proclaimed before any major endeavors were uh, undertaken. You know, they will always uh, proclaim a fast. It was a time to wait on God, and it was a way of seeking the will of God. Uh, James Phillips, the theologian from A Time to Build, in his booklet said this. He says, waiting is never wasted time. I'm going to say that again. He says, waiting is never wasted time. How right he is. He says, waiting is never wasted time. And this is what uh, I added to this note as a comment. I says, how right he is. Sometimes in the Christian life, waiting is more important than running, doing, or serving, or working, or anything else we might do. Matthew Henry said, ours is a frenetic age. And uh, Matthew Henry lived in the 19th century. And he said that during his time. Just think about how frenetic it is. Now everything is just busy. And they thought things were busy back then, right? He says, and the pace of life is such that many of us, even in Christian circles, no longer know how to wait or be still or meditate in God's presence. Isn't that so true? We don't like silence. We don't like quiet. I did, when I was teaching at Faith Christian School uh, one time, I did an uh, experiment with, with my 11th graders. I said, we're going to sit quiet for one minute. Just one minute. We're going to sit quiet and not say a word. And we just sat quiet. I put my time on my phone. And you can see eyes wandering and <laughs> saw them getting a little fidgety. And then when that minute was up, some of them were like, you know, kind of like that because it said it felt like the longest minute. But we live in such a frenetic age that we no longer know how to wait or to be still or to meditate in God's presence. We feel like we have to always have noise. 
or we have to have that thing that's surgically attached to our hands called a phone. I think some of our phones are surgically attached, right? You know, I know our younger people sleep sleep with their phones right under their pillow. And you know, I remember when I was, this was back in 20, like 2007. I was teaching at Saks at that time. I remember 2007, that's back, like right around the time the iPhone first came out, but most of that people had Androids back then. But I remember back then, my students were telling me that they slept with their phones under their pillows. I'm like, why? I mean, what are you going to miss out on? You know, but it's just so readily available to us right now. Any of y'all young people do that? Sleep with your phones under your pillow? Yes, or don't go to sleep, or, or don't go to sleep at all? <laughs> you know, but we don't know the value of waiting and being still and meditating on God's uh, presence. He goes on to say, instead, we are overactive and would rather be running around busy with a thousand and one other things in our Christian lives than simply waiting in quietness upon God for help, for God, rather, God for help, illumination, and strengthening. And that's what fasting entailed. It entailed just being quiet, just waiting on God. Now, it's not a passive waiting where we're just sitting in our house just doing nothing. It is an active waiting, but we fast, we pray, we immerse ourselves in Scripture, all the while waiting on God. And that's what fasting looked like in uh, Old Testament times, and that's how uh, it should look for us. In the Old Testament, in particular, it was a way of seeking the will of God. And also we see humility, because he says back here again, in this verse, he says that we might humble ourselves before our God. So first he proclaimed a fast, at the beginning of verse 21, that we might humble ourselves. Humility is always in order, especially seeking God's protection and direction. We're humbling ourselves under his power. One of the benefits of fasting and prayer is humility. Why? Because we are confessing our sufficiency on him. We're confessing our reliability on him. That's what humility does. God says on this person he would look, one who, who is poor and of a contrite spirit and one who trembles at my word. That's Isaiah 66 and 2. Those are the ones who God looks on, those who humble themselves. And Ezra was a man of God, and he knew that, so that's why he humbled himself. We're not called to be proud and self-reliant. We're called to humble ourselves. Because James said in James, the fourth chapter, that it is pride that promotes strife. He says, therefore, submit to God. That's James 4 and 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is humility. 
This is the posture of humility. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up. That is why humility is important. And that's why Ezra said that we might humble ourselves. That we may humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He says, humble ourselves before our God. And then also he says seeking. He says humbling ourselves before our God to seek from him. We're seeking from God. Seeking is a natural response to humility toward God. We seek him because we are aware of his sovereignty and his protection. And it takes great humility to seek for God or seek from God. You know why? Because our pride won't often let us do so. Our pride says, I can do this on my own. I just need to tough it out. I need to forge my own way. I need to be a a maverick. I just need to get out there and be this self-made man or self-made woman and just grind it out and just do it myself. And next in this observation about fasting, we see the right way. He says to seek from God. What way? The right way. There's only one way. And that's the right way. The wrong way is not the right way. There is only one way, friends. And that is the right way. God's way. God's way is always the right way. Proverbs 16 and 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We plan our way, but who directs our steps? God does. The psalmist says about God, Psalm 18 and 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. God's way is perfect. It is always right. It is never wrong. So that's why they sought him, because it's never wrong. There's a poem called God's Way written by a lady named Lida Leach in 1911. If you're doing your math, that's about 110 years ago. She was a fine Christian woman. It was a hymn actually called God's Way. And it says here, God's way is the best way, though I may not see. Why sorrows and trials often gather round me. He ever is seeking my goal to refine. So humbly I trust him, my Savior divine. And the chorus says, God's way is the best way. God's way is the right way. I'll trust in him always. He knoweth the best. The second verse says, God's way is the best way. My path he has planned. That's like the Proverbs 16 and 9 we just read. 
I'll trust in him always while holding his hand. In shadows or sunshine, he is ever near. With him for my refuge, I never need fear. And the last verse says, God's way shall be my way. He knoweth the best. And leaning upon him, sweet, sweet is my rest. No harm can befall me. Safe, safe shall I be. I'll cling to him ever. So precious is he. And that was written in 1911. And people say hymns are outdated. Uh, you know, yeah. But what does that tell us? God's way is the right way. Whether in shadows or sun, sunshine. Whether things, because this is, this is the great deception here. When things don't seem to go the way that we want them to go, which it does happen in this fallen world, what do we do? We seek to do things where? Our way. We think God, <laughs> you know, the sovereign God, the divine creator of everything, the God who knows all and is all. Somehow we think that we're smarter than God. We do. Again, we don't necessarily say it with our mouths, but we believe it in our hearts because of what we do. When things don't seem to go the way that we want them to go, what do we do? We turn to our own devices. We think we know better than God which direction our life should go. But we see here in Ezra in his <coughs> prayer for divine protection that he is seeking the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So when we fast and pray, we humble ourselves, we seek him and he will show us, guess what, the right way. God will always show us the right way. Jesus himself said that he is the right, quote, way. John 14 and 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Okay? No one. He didn't say he is a way. He didn't say he is a truth. He didn't say that he is a life. And life is talking about a, a, a abundant life. Everlasting life. He says he is the way. And his way is the right way. And then lastly we see in this petition. We see faith. He says I was ashamed. To request of the king an escort. Of soldiers and horsemen. So, so the question is, did Ezra speak prematurely? Because Nehemiah asked the king for protection for his trip. We're going to see that when we read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2 and 9. Nehemiah asked for protection, but uh, did Ezra perhaps speak uh, prematurely? Or did Nehemiah doubt God by asking for protection? But we have to understand that God does expect us to use the means that he provides. Along with faith and trust in him. You know, think about a seatbelt. Seatbelts are supposed to save lives, right? But then sometimes when seatbelts don't 
save lives, but sometimes people can die because they had on a seatbelt. But does that still mean that we don't use seatbelts? Of course not. Okay? So just because Nehemiah asked for protection, I mean that he doubted God just as much as Ezra was not acting foolishly by not asking for protection. There are times where using human means will lead us away from trusting God. And there's sometimes when using human means uh, will be a poor witness to unbelievers. Sometimes that is the case. But this is an individual matter before the Lord. Sometimes it is okay to use human means. But sometimes it's okay not to. But it is a individual matter. Uh, we can't make a law where there is no law because there's no prohibition against using human means unless those means lead us away from God. So it is a conscience issue. And so Ezra took the path of uh, trusting in God. So the Lord gave Ezra, in this case, special faith in him and not in man for this journey. And God does that. Sometimes he gives uh, his people special faith in special circumstances to trust in him and him alone. Sometimes people can deal with that when they're dealing with the sickness. Sometimes God may give them special faith to not go to a doctor. And sometimes they go to the doctor. God has gifted doctors uh, to care for us. Doctors have been around since the beginning of time. And sometimes it is wise to do what? To go seek a doctor. And there are other times where God gives people special faith to do that. But the main point is that it is an individual matter. We can't be legalistic as some uh, denominations are and make a law uh, where there isn't uh, no law. Prohibit what God has allowed and allow what God has uh, prohibited. Because what did Ezra's special faith do? God answered that prayer. The Lord answered that prayer for protection. And because of God's covenant faithfulness. So God did answer that. So this is the right approach to take in seeking God's protection and guidance for this task. Was to fast and pray. To show humility. To seek for the right way. And to show extraordinary faith. God honors us in our work when we seek him earnestly with humility. When we fast and pray to God, God does seek, I'm sorry, God does honor that when we do it with humility and when we're expressing trust in him. Amen. Our next principle is in trusting the gospel and other sacred things to faithful people. So in verse 24, we see Ezra weighing out the silver, the gold, the articles, and offerings for the house of God that the king had given them. Now, the silver, it says, that I weighed, verse 26, I weighed into their hand 650 talents of silver. That was approximately... Uh, 25 tons over 50,000 pounds uh, to put it in even greater numbers that's a lot of silver there are no two ways about it and that's like uh, 18 wheeler uh, carrying that much silver around so approximately 25 tons of silver uh, the gold weighed approximately three tons or so and this total weight did not include other valuable objects and whatnot and Ezra had entrusted the care of these objects to the 12 priests. Men who proved to be faithful. 
these treasures were the Lord's. Look at verse 28. He says, and I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. What is he telling them to do? Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of God. So Ezra had entrusted these men to care for these objects. Remember, we're talking about entrusting the gospel and other sacred things to faithful people. These men had a tremendous responsibility because gold and silver were very, very valuable and costly, especially in antiquity. Not as much now with silver, but during this time, I mean, man, if you had silver, you were wealthy. And if you had gold, you were extremely wealthy. Matthew Henry said this about this verse. He says, our prayers must also always rather be seconded with our endeavors. The care of Christ's gospel, his church and ordinances must not be left with him, but that is also be committed to faithful men. And that's why Ezra did this. He had to commit it to faithful men. They had to be trusted in order for him to turn it over to them. And Paul mentioned this to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2, 1 and 2 about the gospel. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the second chapter and the second verse, 2, 2 and 2. He says, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, and he's speaking of the gospel. He says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The gospel is to be, be committed to faithful men, not charlatans, not those who wish to fleece the flock of God or to use them for profit as a lot of people do now. It is faithful men who is to be entrusted to just as in this passage, these faithful men were trusted with these sacred things, the gold and the silver and all the other materials were sacred to the Lord. The gospel of Jesus is a serious matter that needs to be handled as such. The priests were being entrusted with the means to worship God, the silver, the gold, the articles, and the offerings. And so what was characteristic of these men? Number one, they were holy. We see this again in verse 28. He says, you are what? Holy. You're holy. You're holy. What better reason to entrust the articles to them? They were set apart to God. That's what holy, remember where holy means sanctified, set apart, sacred, all those words. In our context, saintly. Okay, we're saints. We are sanctified. We are the called out ones. So these men were holy. They, those who are faithful ministers or servants of the Lord are called to be cleaned. They're called to be holy. 
They must have a good reputation among outsiders. God told his servants to be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. He said this in Isaiah 52 and 11. Be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. You who serve in the temple. And then number two. The articles are holy. As I say you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. These articles point to the sum and substance of Christ. They are the treasures of God's grace, which are the precious truths of the gospel. The articles are holy because Christ is holy. All those articles of worship pointed to the treasures of Christ because these were treasures that were given to them for temple worship. And all those treasures pointed to Christ as our greatest treasure. A treasure is a was a great gift, something that you cherish, something that you value. Those articles that they needed to worship God were valuable because they were holy. Just as Christ is our treasure, He is our psalm and He is our substance. So whatever we are entrusted with, especially sacred things like the gospel, we are to take care of it with great care with integrity and with punctuality. You see that in verses 29 and 30. Watch and keep them. Watch and keep them with great care. Take care of them with integrity. That's what it requires. Warren Worsby said this. He says, our task is to protect what God has given us and be ready to give an account of our stewardship when we get to the end of the journey. Entrusting the gospel to faithful people is going to reap, reap rather accountability to God. Whatever God entrusts us with, and make no mistake about it, just because you're not a pastor doesn't mean that the gospel is not entrusted to you. It is entrusted to every single person who hears it. It is entrusted to the believer to care for the gospel and to not allow it to be perverted and to share it. It is entrusted to unbelievers to what? Hear it and believe it. Because guess what? They're going to have to give an account for what they've heard if they reject it. They have to give an account for that. And for those of us who are believers, we're entrusted with the gospel message. Each time we here we are entrusted with it to to care for it to protect it at all costs to protect the gospel message from being perverted to project the gospel message from being hijacked as false christians often do as apostates often do they twist the gospel into something that it is not but we who are entrusted with that ought to be faithful in protecting the gospel message Making sure that it is the right gospel. As Paul told the Galatian church, if, if me or an angel from heaven comes and proclaim a gospel to you that you have not heard, he says, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Let them be accursed if they come to you with the, another gospel. 
because another gospel is no gospel at all and we are entrusted to that same gospel may our last principle worshiping in a Christ centered way so we're looking at here at the return to Jerusalem again that verse 31 then we, we departed from the river of Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem remember he had gone back to bring people back so that's why he's uh, saying he went back to Babylon to bring people back and the hand of our God was upon us so the Lord brought them safely to Jerusalem after three and a half months and over miles and the answer to Ezra's prayer that we read in verse 23 is realized remember he fasted and prayed that the Lord protect them because he told the king that he didn't need what that he didn't need help he didn't need protection so the Lord answered this prayer divine protection was with them he delivered by protecting them from the enemies along the route of this dangerous journey because when they traveled back then in caravans, you, you had what they call marauders. Marauders are basically land pirates. They, they loot, they steal from traveling caravans that are going through the land. They, they rob them of their jewelry, of their livestock, whatever the case may be. So they're going through very detrimental, I mean, not detrimental, I'm putting detrimental and treacherous territory. They were going through very detrimental and treacherous territories. But God delivered them. He protected them. And what did Ezra do? He praised God for it. Look at verse 31 again. And the hand of our God was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. So after three days of rest, the articles were weighed and accounted for. See, this in verse 33. Now, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimuth, the son of Uriah, the priest, and with Eleazar, the son of Phineas. And uh, them were the Levites, within the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and the son of Noadiah, the son of Benui. And with the number and weight of everything, and the weight was written down at that and so what did they do? The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats, and a sin offering. And all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God learn from this principle they came back and worshiped God they came back and worshiped God the returnees offered burnt offerings and a sin offering to the Lord this is worship and there are three things to note in this number one this was an appropriate way to honor the Lord after seeing his divine protection demonstrated you see God's protection you see God's hand 
in your life, what do you do? You worship him. You offer praises to him. Worship of God is a response to his goodness. Whenever we experience God's goodness, guess what? We should worship him in song, in prayer, in proclaiming his goodness. God is faithful and he is worthy of our worship. We respond to God with worship because worship is simply giving God what is fitting. It is giving God what is fitting. He is praiseworthy, not only for his power, but also for his providence and divine protection. And you know what? Even when God protects us in our foolishness, we should give thanks to him. You know, I was talking about the other uh, night in Bible study, all the foolish things I did when I was in high school when I wasn't a Christian. And the things that God saved me from doing. How God, how good God is. And when God saved me, I was thanking for all that stuff. Like, Lord, thank you for, for protecting me in my foolishness and in my rebellion against you. Because I could have died in my sins and been eternally lost without the Lord, without the hope of the resurrection and being with Christ. And all of us can say that. When we see the good hand of the Lord, guess what? We praise him. We worship him. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you. Number two, uh, Israel was split in two back in First uh, uh, Kings, the 11th chapter. That's when God had punished uh, Israel by uh, splitting the kingdom into two. We read that in First uh, Kings 11 as a judgment against Solomon. And then also in First Kings uh, 12 uh, where God uh, at the Jeroboam's uh, rebellion God had um, I'm sorry it was, a, it was a revolt against Rehoboam and God had split Israel into two kingdoms remember the northern kingdom had ten tribes and the southern kingdom had two tribes but here we see in this passage about the number 12 that the Lord by providence had the priest to offer up sacrifices which were what 12 bulls 12 male goats and 96 rams. That means eight rams per tribe. God did this for a united Israel. Because it was only the southern tribes that went into exile. The other 10 tribes had been scattered by the Assyrians, uh, never to return to Jerusalem. But the southern tribes did. But what did God do as an act of providence? And this is a foreshadowing. They sacrificed 12 bulls to represent the 12 tribes, the 12 male goats, which represent 12 tribes, and the 96 rams uh, that represented eight rams per tribe. And this was for a united Israel. And this is a foreshadowing of when the Lord will unite the two nations under one king, Jesus Christ. And we see this written in the book of Ezekiel. The 37th chapter, verses 21 through 23, and this is what it says. There's going to be one kingdom under one king. God told Ezekiel, thus say to them, thus says the Lord, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land. 
on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they be divided into two kingdoms again. So what we see here in this chapter, what we see here with these sacrificial offerings, the 12 bulls and the 12 goats and the 96 rams was a foreshadowing of when the Lord will unite the two kingdoms under one king who is Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said they did not any longer go two tribes one way and ten another but all 12 met by their representatives at the same altar. And that's what this is foreshadowing here. And then you have the two offerings that were offered. You have the, the sin offering served as the atonement for the sins of all Israel. And the burnt offerings typified the surrender of the entire nation to the service of the Lord. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system, we talked about this studying through Leviticus, the entire Old Testament system pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who offered himself on the cross, you know, as the atonement for all of our sins. So therefore, our worship must always focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is central to all we do in worship. It is all about Christ and him crucified. And that's what we see these offerings pointing to. Amen. In conclusion with our applications. Things that this scripture calls us to do. Serve or sanctify rather the Lord God in your hearts. Peter said that in 1 Peter 3 and 14. Make holy the Lord God in our hearts. And that's what we see happening here in this passage. Ezra chose holy men to steward the holy articles of the temple. Sanctify God in our hearts. Number two, serve the body of Christ where you fit in. Everyone is called to serve the body of Christ. Just as Ezra knew that he could not institute temple worship without the Nethanim and the Levites, we can't properly worship God without everyone serving. Now, it's up to the pastors, up to all of us to serve. Show yourself faithful and dependable to the Lord's church. I can tell you all how important that is to a, a pastor. I mean, my pastors always tell us that about being faithful, being faithful to the Lord's church. You don't do it for the pastor. You're doing it to the Lord, but it encourages the pastor when people are faithful and dependable. Just as on your job, do your employers look at you as being faithful and dependable? Being to work on time, being able to do things and get things done. Next, seek the Lord's help for decisions, discernment, and determining his will. We saw that in the fasting that they did. We always seek the Lord's wisdom. Always. And then surrender your sin and yourself to the Lord. We see that in the worship where they offered the sacrifices, the burnt offerings to the Lord. They surrendered themselves to him. In conclusion, read this. I wrote this meditation here. God is the one who protects his people. 
He is the one who will see his plans come to completion. Paul, while in prison, was confident when he told the Philippians, in Philippians 1 and 6, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God saw to it that Ezra, his priest and his scribe, would lead his people through the dangerous lands into his holy city where the Lord's redemptive story would continue. And that story continues this day because of Jesus Christ who came to redeem man back to God. If you are unsaved, you have the opportunity to come to Christ because he is always calling. Do not harden your heart. If you need spiritual renewal and refreshing, if you've allowed the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches to get you off track, humble yourself before the Lord and seek his face. He restores, he renews, and he revives. And always remember with divine protection, God blesses the work of those who seek to honor him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the prescription for protection. You've given us the prescription for seeking you. Lord, we thank you that you have protected us throughout our days, our weeks, our months, and our years. Lord, we're not always sought you for wisdom. We're not always uh, fasted and prayed and, and waited and, and stood still. We're not always done that. Father, we ask you to forgive us for that, for not sitting still, for not waiting, but always being in a hurry, always busying ourselves with the affairs of this life, Lord, instead of taking the time to, to rest in you and to be still. Lord, we saw in this passage that the Ezra trusted in you. He trusted in your protection. Lord, may we trust in you and not always trust in the arms of man. We ought to trust in pe we ought to trust people but not trust in them. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we go through our week, as we go through the rest of this day, to pray for, to seek divine protection from you. And Lord, may we cause our affections to be for you and less for this passing and fading away world. In Christ's name I pray, amen.